We understand that mm. highest in the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment in the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was was Nigel. So. <laughs> Welcome to the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the studio, that is the rooftop studio here in Saidia, Morocco. This is my first ever broadcast with a new fully functioning laptop, replacing the less than fully functioning uh, predecessor that uh, pretty much finally fell apart. And hopefully the sound quality will be at least as good, if not a little bit better now. All right, we have uh, some uh, two two guests tonight who I think have quite similar worldviews. In the second hour, Rafiq, otherwise known as Robert Sean Lewis, discusses his new novel, Atan the Revolutionary, and the political views with the spiritual uh, underlay in that book uh, and in Rafiq's thought in general, I think is actually pretty congruent with that of first hour guest, Richard Cook. Richard Cook is doing uh, amazing work these days, dissecting the issues that we deal with on this show, the deep state corruption, the bankster dictatorship, the uh, geopolitical shenanigans of those banksters who are trying to take over the world and uh, impose a kind of a Western neoliberal dystopia on the whole planet. Uh, Richard Cook is known, best known perhaps as the uh, space shuttle challenger whistleblower. We've talked about that on the show before, and we've talked about his new book, Our Country Then and Now, which is a terrific intro to American history. I would advise high school history teachers to assign it. And today we're gonna talk about Richard's review of Jeremy Kuzmirov's new book about the Clinton presidency. The Bill Clinton presidency is remembered by many these days with affection because, well, before it, we had Ronald Reagan threatening the world with nuclear incineration and uh, doing terrible things to people in Central America and so on. And then George H.W. Bush uh, taking the helm and going after Saddam and uh, brutally murdering Iraqis in Gulf War One and setting the stage for even worse to come. And then after the Clinton years, which were the late 90s, mid to late 90s, along came George W. Bush and uh, Dick Cheney, who presided over the 9-11 false flag and all of the horrors that have come out of that and, and what's going on since. So those Clinton years, actually, you know, when you those of us who lived through those years sometimes think, you know, that wasn't such a bad time. Maybe Clinton wasn't really such a bad guy. Well, Jeremy Kuzmarov says <laughs> not so fast. And Richard Cook seems to agree. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Richard Cook. How are you doing? Good, Kevin. How are you? I'm well. Glad you're doing well in Morocco. That's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. Morocco is uh, is quite uh, a nice change, actually, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. America's too weird for me now. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It's pretty weird yeah. for me, too. I'm glad I live down out in the country in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Maryland. It's a, a beautiful place with a long history, including a Native American history that I'm very much uh, interested in. So, yeah, I know just what you mean. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. That's another thing you share in common with uh, Rafiq, otherwise known as Robert Sean Lewis, the second hour guest. He also is uh, very interested in, in Native American culture and spirituality. It's even uh, kind of a linchpin of his book. Uh, so I don't know. Have you read his stuff at all? No, I have not. Yeah, well, hopefully. Now maybe, I will. <laughs> yeah, maybe you two will start reading each other because I really think you're yeah. kindred spirits. You have the same analysis, yeah. although. Yeah, you're taking it more from an erudite kind of historical perspective. He's taking it from kind of a creative literary perspective. But right. um, I, I think you guys are barking up very much the same tree. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, your your view of of, of history and, and the <laughs> bad guys behind many of the unfortunate developments that we talk about in the show uh, is, is I think one of the more you know, comprehensive and accurate ones I've come across. And I think your, your take on Kuzmarov's book, Warmonger about Bill Clinton is, is absolutely right on. And rather than being sort of the good guy in this whole story, in a way, Bill Clinton is, is maybe the worst guy who presided over the, the turn for the worse after the cold war. Yeah, I had a pretty good sense of that. Um, when I was writing my book, uh, our country then and now, uh, I spent uh, time on every presidential administration, really going back to the Lincoln administration or, or even before. Uh, and when I got to Clinton, uh, you know, Clinton claimed during his presidency that he had no interest in foreign policy or foreign affairs. Uh, he was interested in bringing the United States back economically. Uh, and uh, uh, in, in his domestic policies, but that uh, foreign policy was, was just really boring to him. Uh, but then when you get into it, and, and I was really led into this by, by Jeremy even before he wrote his book or came out with his book, because he and I have the same publisher, uh, Clarity Press, and so I was able to uh, get kind of an advanced look at uh, Jeremy's account of Clinton. And oh my gosh, it was just amazing uh, what he was able to piece together about Clinton. Uh, Clinton was a CIA operative uh, going back uh, uh, to his college years. And uh, even before that, his family in Hot Springs, Arkansas, was very mixed up with organized crime and the uh, political machine that was being run at that time by Winthrop Rockefeller. So Clinton was by no means this innocent young boy who was going to bring uh, 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 baby boomer values to the White House. He was a CIA operative from the get-go. And, and a he bit was of a gangster. Intimately, huh? And a bit of a gangster, too. And a gangster. And he was intimately involved with the MENA, Arkansas drug and uh, uh, weapons running that uh, burst into the news through Iran-Contra. Uh, he was back in the, uh, uh, the weeds of all that, uh, fully enabling the CIA uh, and the, um, the military-industrial complex in making Arkansas a base for some of the most heinous crimes of the era. And from there, he was ready to go into the White House uh, and continued uh, this, down the same road uh, as president. So, yeah, it was pretty amazing to delve into all that 
thanks to uh, Jeremy and Clarity Press. And it seems like the CIA has played a bigger and bigger role in selecting candidates uh, with, I guess, you know, they selected Johnson in uh, November 1963 in a certain sense, uh, perhaps along with uh, with the Mossad. Uh, but they they didn't really kind of get on this run of, of picking all the presidents until George H.W. Bush took over after Reagan. I guess they'd sort of run the Reagan presidency through Bush's office. But H.W. Bush, of course, was CIA through and through. And Clinton, too, as you say. Uh, and, you know, Bush Jr., I think, would also qualify through his family. Uh, Obama was was CIA as well. You know, doesn't Obama sort of right. remind, remind you of Clinton in terms of the way he was CIA from, from his college days? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, it was the exact same pattern. Uh, and it was like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, you know, Clinton and Obama. Uh, they hardly skipped a beat, but of course, in between the two was the Bush family, and and uh, Cheney, and and Cheney was part of the deep state and and uh, the neocon uh, world, uh, going all the way back to when he was uh, a staff member on the staff of uh, Scoop Jackson. Uh, the senator from Boeing, you know, going back into the, the 1960s. So, uh, you know, the, the the way these gangsters uh, appeared on the scene and made their careers differs a little bit. But the common denominator is the CIA and what evolved into the deep state, uh, the darkness that has run our country uh, ever since. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's all part of the background that we're learning more and more about all the time. And, and Richard, let me uh, go off on a quick philosophical aside about this, this issue of the deep state. You know, as you say, uh, people like Bill Clinton are basically gangsters and the wing of the CIA that took power is the drug dealing gangster wing of the CIA that works with folks with lots of money to make even more money through all kinds of illegal and unethical means. It's kind of a free-for-all where everybody's out for themselves making money. And the question becomes, is that because of the fact that there is a deep state that is a set of self-appointed platonic guardians who you know, are supposedly going to be defending uh, the nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic, but who of course really do pursue a certain amount of self-interest, Versus countries like like Russia, uh, where Putin, in a sense, brought the oligarchs to heel, that is the gangster types, uh, right. were running wild. And then he created right. a deep state, that is a, a, an intelligence, a ruthless intelligence apparatus that was above the law, to bring those oligarchs to heel. And over in China, we have the CCP and its uh, enforcement apparatus, which brings the billionaire gangsters to heal and and make sure that the banking is mostly public banking, not private banking. And, right. uh, and you know, delegitimizes de all forms of corruption, uh, makes corruption right. into the, the thing that the Chinese people hate and fear the most. So don't we actually need a deep state? Don't we need the equivalent of a CCP or a Putin to stop gangster oligarchs from destroying us as they're doing here in the United States? Well, you need a strong executive. Let me put it that way. And when I was uh, working for the U.S. Treasury Department uh, in the executive branch, 
we had a strong uh, bureaucratic uh, presence. Uh, we regulated a lot of the operations of, of U.S. banks, in particular as they processed and handled uh, uh, public funds. Uh, and we had the authority to investigate. We had the authority to bring charges uh, for violations of law or, or regulations. But we were not out there uh, running wild behind the scenes uh, you know, wearing uh, dark raincoats and and uh, packing guns to make everybody uh, toe the line, or, or 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 they would just be gotten rid of. And that's kind of what the deep state today in America has become. It's become a gangster operation. We were strong executive branch enforcers of legitimate laws and regulations, but we were not out of control. And we weren't dealing in drug money from all over the world either, the way the CIA does. Right. So so having a non-corrupt executive to oversee the playing field, like having a referee in a, a sporting event, is highly useful. Uh, and, that, and it seems to me, in a sense, that's that's what's lacking in the whole neoliberal program seems to be about making sure that there's no honest broker, no referee, so that whoever yeah. has the most money can be above the law and do anything they want. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But I want to go back uh, on this uh, this issue of where did all this come from? Uh, and, and I'm going to mention a name that's very controversial in some circles, and that is a a British journalist named Douglas Reed. And I know you're familiar with Reed and, and his work. Uh, he, he was uh, the foremost London Times uh, European correspondent during the period between the two world wars. And after uh, he had uh, left the London Times, he wrote a very famous book called The Controversy of Zion. And the controversy of Zion is something that anyone who has uh, has a, a burning interest in the history of uh, the modern era really should delve into. Uh, it's available as a free download on the internet. If you go on to the UNS Review, uh, you'll find a free download of the controversy of Zion. It's a long book. It's like 600 pages, but uh, uh, Reed was, I, I consider him the greatest journalist of the 20th century. And even though historians may have come behind him uh, and, and reported different things, I think his grasp of the essence of the 20th century was probably the best of anybody I've ever read. But he takes it back into uh, what, what he calls the, the revolutionary impulse in the Western world, which set out some centuries ago to essentially destroy the nation state, destroy uh, uh, all uh, institutions of religion, of family, of morality, and bring everything under the control of a central totalitarian authority. And that central totalitarian authority has become what we call today globalism. Uh, and we see it in the uh, World Economic Forum. We see it in the 
the Rock of what I call the Rockefeller Republic, when the Rockefeller Empire ran the United States. Uh, we see that in the so-called deep state, and we see it above all in what is called the neocons. And the neocons uh, are very dominant today in U.S. governance, but they came out of this long uh, revolutionary tradition uh, that Reed goes back to the Cromwell Revolution in England in the 1600s. He goes into it when he discusses the Illuminati. And of course, people make fun of the Illuminati uh, as a kind of a joke, but there was such a thing as the Bavarian Illuminati that was responsible in many ways for the terrors of the French Revolution. Uh, and then uh, coming out of that in the 19th century was revolutionary communism. Uh, and the most exemplary figure of that, of course, was Karl Marx. Uh, and that broke out in the revolutions of, of 1848. But then by the end of the 19th century, uh, it merged with the phenomenon we call Zionism, where the uh, rabbinical uh, uh, Judaic uh, uh, officials, as it were, from uh, Eastern Europe and Russia uh, created modern Zionism and eventually created the modern state of Israel and uh, engineered the takeover by the neocons in the United States. It all kind of merges together. But the history of that is a fascinating read. And as I was studying uh, uh, Douglas Reed again, that's when I came across Alison Weir's book on uh, how the United States uh, supported the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. And, and that led to much of what we've seen since then in terms of the control that Israel and the neocons have over U.S. foreign policy. It all kind of merges together. And the CIA becomes kind of the handmaiden or the instrument of that. And the best example of this is the coup in 2014 in Ukraine where the neocons led by uh, Victoria Newland and the CIA uh, combined with the uh, uh, NGO uh, run by George Soros and all of these people kind of merged together to overthrow the government of Ukraine in 2014 and then to launch the proxy war against Russia uh, through that. So uh, if you trace all these things back to your history, you get a very vivid picture of how it all has come together in our time. And then while the Ukrainian war was going on, suddenly this catastrophe breaks out in the Middle East where you've got uh, uh, the whole situation now unfolding with the rampage that Israel is going uh, on in order to complete its takeover of the uh, uh, of the part of the Middle East that they call Eretz Israel or Greater Israel. So what I've been trying to do in all my writings over the last uh, few months, mainly since I finished my book, was to delve into some of these things uh, that I had only touched upon in my book and try to go into them more deeply. And that's led to the whole series of articles that I've been putting out uh, including this latest uh, 
uh, one on uh, Clinton, because I can now see how Clinton fit in so perfectly with this whole vast conspiracy. You know, Hillary Clinton, when uh, Bill Clinton was accused of philandering with Monica Lewinsky, she said that uh, this was a, a vast right-wing conspiracy. Well, she's part of her own vast conspiracy, and so was her husband, and they still are. Uh, well, well, let, uh, let's let, let, let's yeah yeah. Let, let, yeah, let's break into the this the nineties. Yeah, yeah. So good. You know, just uh, when I introduced the show, I mentioned that we often think back to Clinton and think of that period as relatively peaceful and prosperous compared to the horrors that preceded it and the even worse horrors that came after it. And one of the uh, things that we often think of is that Clinton resisted the neocons to a certain extent. The neocons, led by Wolfowitz, wanted to go all the way to Baghdad after uh, Bush Bush uh, one's war, and they kept pressuring the Clinton administration to do so as well. They may have had a hand in the Oklahoma City bombing, which was originally, it seems, designed to be blamed on some Middle Eastern patsies to bring the U.S. into an all-out war in Iraq uh, in the mid-90s. And uh, Clinton seemed to be on the side of Rabin, who was assassinated so that the neocons uh, could take over in Israel. And of course, the, the extremist neocon Zionists, the Likudniks, have been running Israel ever since. Uh, so we, you know, the normal understanding is that the Clinton administration uh, kept a lid on the neocons to a certain extent. And then 9-11 was necessary to blow that lid off. Uh, right. Is that completely wrong? It's it's not completely wrong, um, but there were a number of things going on uh, kind of beneath the surface uh, during the 90s. And, of course, it's all colored by the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Uh, so uh, the various uh, parties in the shadows didn't quite know how to handle that. But basically, they saw that as an opportunity now to move into the Middle East and take over the Middle East. So uh, behind the scenes, all of that preparation for 9-11 was also going on. But uh, hey, there was something I heard that, uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, uh, people have often wondered, well, why did uh, the US military not complete the first uh, Gulf War and go all the way to Baghdad? Uh, well, you know what Scott Ritter says, and he was there. He was in the Marines during that war. He said they ran out of ammunition. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Isn't that weird. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what Ritter said. He said they 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 had put everything into uh, uh, getting into Iraq, but at a certain point they ran out of momentum because they ran out of ammunition for the tanks. So they couldn't go all the way. So they had to defer the takeover of Iraq and, you know, for another, um, uh, I guess, 13, 14 years. But during the interim, uh, there was that campaign waged uh, against um, uh, Saddam Hussein and Iraq by Madeleine Albright. And there was the bombing of Iraq that uh, Clinton uh, approved and that uh, started to uh, 
take place where uh, she was boasting that the bombing of Iraq and the sanctions caused the deaths of 500,000 Iraqi children and, and that it was, quote, worth it. So even though uh, that war uh, appeared to kind of uh, take a back seat, uh, nothing had stopped the momentum that the United States had uh, created, whereby they would eventually take over uh, Iraq and then proceed to go to the other seven nations that uh, Wesley Clark told everybody about uh, and well, complete the uh, the takeover that uh, seems to be stalling out today. How about Hillary's great right-wing conspiracy remark? Uh, could that have been related to the likelihood that Monica Lewinsky was a Mossad asset who had been sent to compromise Clinton in such a way that he wouldn't be able to force the Likudniks into a viable peace deal? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it's related, but uh, Hillary Clinton was kind of uh, uh, Bill, her husband's um, uh, guardian uh, in a lot of these things. I mean, when he was uh, in so much uh, personal trouble because of his cocaine addiction, uh, she was the one who would take him to the hospitals and threaten everybody not to tell what was going on and all that stuff. Uh, she ran the Clinton family operation out of the Rose Law Firm, uh, you know, with Whitewater and uh, all that stuff. Uh, so she may have just been saying the most convenient thing she could to get uh, uh, try to try to get her husband a little bit of a respite from the persecution. But right. certainly he certainly he was being uh, they were using all this as a distraction so they could continue to work behind the scenes. And in my own personal opinion, and I cover this a little bit in my book and, and in Jeremy and his book, I think he's, he's going in the same direction. Uh, the, uh, the neocons were writing a PNAC at this time project for a new American century that was in, in the works. And that was headed, of course, by the Jewish intellectuals that came out of the uh, Kagan uh, um, um, journalism empire uh, and gave us the neocon uh, manifesto that predicted the new Pearl Harbor. But they were preparing for the new Pearl Harbor all the way through the 1990s. And one of the methods they were using was to turn Osama bin Laden into a household word and of course the fbi also worked with a couple of islamic guys to blow up try to blow up the world trade center i think that was in 1993. so the neocons and the israelis who who were going to run the operation the Mossad, were all working together in the 1990s to set the stage for 9-11 and it was convenient at that time to distract clinton uh, and I don't, of course, nobody knows all of the details of that. But yeah, one of the ways that they were going to distract Clinton was to run Monica Lewinsky at him. And in the meantime, uh, Ken Starr had been investigating Clinton almost from the start of his presidency. He was probably the most investigated president ever uh, during his administration. 
and and Hillary's uh, right wing conspiracy thing, I think we just cover for for all that. Right, right. Um, so how about the, you, you say that during Clinton's presidency, the preparations for the 9-11 New Pearl Harbor were ongoing. And you right. know, I remember after COVID, I started reading more about biological warfare. It, I, re, I came across uh, discussions and de- descriptions of Clinton being given these really alarming kinds of uh, prognostications about the likelihood of horrific bioweapon terror attacks going off. And I believe right. Clinton was quoted as saying, "That's this is the one thing that really keeps me up at night, is the right. fear of a biological weapon going off. Uh, right. and, and of course, 9-11 was, was kind of a joint, uh, you know, blowing up these buildings and blaming airplanes, and then also uh, having the anthrax attack kind of come in on right. the back of 9-11. Although, of course, there were all sorts of anthrax reports on 9-11 itself. And on 9-11, Jeremy Hauer, one of the top 9-11 suspects, uh, ordered the White House to be put on Cipro, the anti-anthrax drug. Um, so right. anyway, in this during this run-up to 9-11 in the Clinton years, while Clinton was being terrorized by these stories of imminent bioterror and such, it, it seems to me that there was a, a neocon plan. You know, the neocons were experts in scaring people. Uh, whether right. you know, Team B was creating these fantastic stories of Russian weapons that we had to match and things like that. So they, right. in the 90s, they they went to work scaring people about WMD falling into the hands of bad actors, uh, terrorists with state support, and so on and so forth. And of course, 9-11 was basically an exercise uh, based on the fiction that uh, Saddam Hussein plus Al-Qaeda would work together to attack the U.S. with anthrax, that was the the bioterror right. exercise, uh, and and 9/11 itself then was also apparently run on that uh, precept to a certain extent. You know, they 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 created a Mohammed Atta meets Ira- Iraqi intelligence in Switzerland story uh, to, to right. try to sell that. So anyway, the neocons were terrorizing everybody with these WMD tales throughout the 1990s, and. Uh, based on stuff I've heard, including some kind of behind-the-scenes stuff uh, that I've gotten from my intelligence and ex-intelligence contacts at Veterans Today and elsewhere, it sounds like the Israelis really pushed this in order to terrorize the Americans into being willing to go along with 9-11, which was basically an Israeli project, but they sold it to the Americans under this pretext that there was this terrible, terrible threat that terrorist groups would get a hold of WMD and you know nuke might go off in American city. And the Cheney doctrine then the response was, well, if there's even a 1% chance that could happen, we have to take it as if it's definitely gonna happen and respond accordingly. Right. So they blow up their own right. buildings, create their own new Pearl Harbor. Now they can do anything they want to try to crush this horrible, terrible, evil threat, which was actually all a big bunch of garbage ginned up by Israel. Right, yeah. And the uh, and and the whole uh, idea of the pandemics, of course, was going on at the same time. And uh, there are reports now that the planning for the COVID pandemic actually goes back into the 1990s. Uh, it may go back even further than that. I, I don't know the science uh, well enough to comment on it. But uh, the whole idea of biological warfare is a very old idea. You know, back back in uh, 
colonial days, they, uh, the military would take a blanket infected with smallpox and throw it in the Indian village and lo, all, you know, the Indian villages would die out. That was uh, in part, at least, uh, biological warfare. And it's never ended. And the, the United States military, if you think about uh, the amount of money that goes into the United States military, and the fact that uh, we haven't had a, a world war really uh, now for three quarters of a century, well, what are those people doing? How do, how do they spend their days? Uh, particularly all the ones that have PhDs. Uh, they spend time sitting around thinking about how to kill people. Uh, I mean, what a way to live. What a way to earn a living. <laughs> the fact remains. It's a dirty job, that. but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> Great. And and a big part of that has gone into biological warfare, despite the, the conventions against it, which some say was the impetus for Obama moving it to Wuhan. Uh, but uh, you still have a lot of secret stuff going on behind the scenes, including all of those labs in Ukraine. And when you read uh, Robert Kennedy's book on Fauci, uh, which uh, I read in, in its entirety, I thought it was a great book. Uh, but he makes very clear that in the planning for uh, COVID, uh, the military had a predominant seat at the table in all of these exercises that they were doing at places like Johns Hopkins, and this went back for years and years. Of course, the big name in all this was Bill Gates, and Gates is is up to his eyeballs in, in this kind of scheming, but the military has been right in there planning the, uh, the crackdowns uh, over pandemics uh, ever since they, they began to talk about this stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole nother line of scheming that gave us the COVID pandemic. And now it looks like they're trying to get the World Health Organization uh, regulations to create an international authority for crackdowns for, uh, you know, for, for virus X, which is the next one coming our way. And uh, that's the false flag that I wrote about in the article you published of mine on uh, uh, veterans today, you know, is, is World War III about to start? Uh, I postulated there that the, the f next big false flag is going to be uh, the next pandemic. Right. It's interesting, isn't it, how they can sell us this idea that a huge pandemic, you know, could be a big threat, which they've been muttering and whispering for a while. But the the evidence in terms of what pandemics we've actually seen historically yeah, it doesn't really support the idea that this is such a gigantic threat. You know, we we had right. that flu in 1919 and, you know, some right. flus that nobody really remembers much and, you know, 1959 and things like that. But there's just really, you know, and then they say, well, it's because there's more air travel happening now. Therefore, right. well, I, I, ha I haven't seen any detailed convincing arguments that, you know, air travel and human encroachment on jungles and things like all of these things they come up with. I've never seen a coherent uh, argument explaining why that really increases the likelihood of pandemics. So it seems that the subtext is that if there really is an increased likelihood of pandemics, which is possible, it would be purely because of the bio warfare programs that are proliferating. Right. 
Yeah, nobody wants yeah, to talk about that. Yeah, these are all cover stories. Yeah, these are all cover stories. In right. fact, uh, one of the cover stories now that the WHO is promoting is that uh, it's all going to be because of climate change. <laughs> right, right. They, they, you know? they just keep making stuff up. Yeah, and uh, or animals in the jungle. You know, they're 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 encroaching on more animals in the jungle in Africa, and so all of this is going to spread. And they always invoke the the great plagues of history. And if you go back to the 1300s and look at the plagues that hit Europe at that time, they were pretty devastating. Uh, but there's also uh, a sub story there that that was a biological attack coming out of uh, Asia on Europe. So uh, really, so it, is it, who, who was it, responsible for that? Uh, the idea was it uh, it was brought from China. And uh, if you look at Barbara Tuckman's book on, uh, 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 on on 14th century history, she writes about that. It's it's, it's pretty interesting. Which well, she, she uh, posits that the plague was the product of a deliberate biological warfare campaign. Well, that it uh, that it was possibly deliberately brought from Asia, because uh, during this period. Uh, Europe had been engaged in assaults on Asia uh, during the period of the Crusades. And the uh, per- the people who lived in the, in the Middle East, as you know, really weren't real happy about that. And so the idea being that this was a way that they were attacking Europe. And hmm. who knows, maybe they, maybe they were. Yeah, I, I yeah, but, vaguely but it, remember that. I think I think I read that 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 book, A Distant Mirror, uh, way yeah, back a great book. thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, I was Chaucer it's a great book. Like that. Boccaccio but, um, books during plagues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it just shows you there's nothing new under the sun. That people have been talking about this kind of thing, and uh, uh, the public is amazingly uh, susceptible to hysteria. And the deep state is amazingly good at invoking hysteria. Uh, and uh, I mean, look at Ukraine, for instance. Uh, and and so it's not it's just not surprising. But the military is up to their eyeballs in all of this nefarious planning. Well, you know, speaking of invoking hysteria around Ukraine, how about the response to Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin? Right. You, you Google around and you look at the Western media response to that. And yeah, hysteria might even be an understatement. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you watch that last night? Yeah, you, no, I, I did watch part part of it today. I wasn't able to watch all of it. I had things going yeah. on. But but the part I watched was was quite good. And Putin, unlike U.S. leaders, seems capable of holding a thought and explaining his yeah. position uh, in some detail over a period of time, uh, without notes, you know, without uh, you know right. re- reading from a teleprompter. <laughs> I kind of wish we had leaders like that here. A lot of people do. My wife watched, and I watched that whole thing, two hours and seven minutes, uh, without. A pause, and uh, we were both deeply impressed by Putin. Uh, and one interesting thing was, I tell the story of how Ukraine happened in my book, and so I was quite pleased that I, I got most of what Putin was talking about because uh, none of what he was saying was really entirely new. 
but what he did was he put together and was allowed to put together uh, a narrative, a historical narrative that made so much sense and explained so much about what has happened that, uh, yeah, uh, the propagandists find that very hard to take. Yeah, it's it's interesting how that kind of hysteria seems to uh, erupt when they're really threatened. You know, I think they're they're threatened when Putin is given a chance to talk because he sounds so much better than his rivals. Right. He makes Zelensky right. look like a, you know an ape in a tracksuit or whatever uh, Tucker Carlson call him. And, right. and likely, you know, speak, another another example of hysteria is the genocidal hysteria in Israel, which, to mm-hmm. my mind anyway is a reaction to uh, a similar kind of desperation. That is, they saw uh, a huge, you know, just this huge uh, problem, you know, slapped them on October 7th. Their, you know, their military uh, collapsed. And I think they see the writing on the wall. I mean, these people have never been able to get their uh, hundreds of millions of neighbors to accept them. Because right. they aren't behaving <laughs> well enough to be accepted. And I think they kind of know yeah. that. The writing's on the wall. And so this genocidal hysteria is sort of like the the last lashing out of a, of a dying entity. Yeah, it, it, it is that. And, and this brings us back again to Douglas Reed. Because uh, Douglas Reed, and I'll just make it very short, said essentially that World War I and World War II were instigated by the Zionists as cover for the establishment of the state of Israel. And that uh, what he was forecasting as World War III was going to have the same cause, but it would ultimately fail because they're in the wrong. And and wrong does not prevail uh, uh, over time on, on, on this planet, given the, the spiritual nature of humanity. And, and that's kind of where we are right now, he would say. Right. And yeah, I, I would I tend agree to with agree that. with that, with the big picture there. Uh, now, yeah. Ryan has challenged uh, Reed's take on World War One being orchestrated by Zionists. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think his his articles on that topic have painted a more complex and nuanced picture in which the Zionists right. are merely one player and probably not the dominant one. Have you read those? Right. And what's your take on those? Oh yeah, yeah. I've 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 been following. Uh, I've got a contact who who's uh, uh, actually uh, a converted uh, Jewish Christian who follows the events in uh, the Middle East very closely, and he's very conversant with uh, Ron's uh, Ron Unz's articles. Uh, my own sense is that the Zionists of that time. We're playing all options. Uh, their objective was to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. Uh, that was the result of a power play that took place when Herzl was the head of the Zionist movement. And Herzl, according to Reed, had accepted the British proposal for a Jewish state either in Uganda or Mozambique. And because Herzl had done that, uh, the powers behind uh, the Zionist movement essentially threw Herzl out and uh, uh, canceled him, and he died soon afterwards. And uh, the people who stepped in to take over, including uh, Chaim Weizmann, uh, 
who was the uh, first president of Israel, but also had been sent from Russia by the uh, uh, the rabbis to get England on board with the Zionist project. Uh, he was working both sides of the fence because they didn't know at that time whether Germany was going to win the war or whether England was going to win the war. But eventually somebody made the decision. And uh, it's very difficult to tell exactly who made it or under what pressure. Somebody made the decision that the U.S. would send a million troops to Europe so that Britain could send part of its army from the Western Front to Palestine and take over Palestine, which is what happened. That's how it worked. And in the meantime, you had the Zionists in America, including Brandeis uh, and, and his disciple Felix Frankfurter, being part of the creation of the Federal Reserve which freed up all of the wealth of America to support the British and the French uh, war effort. The person uh, or, or the power that created the American Federal Reserve were the Rothschilds. And I go into this in my book. Uh, there would be no Federal Reserve without the Rothschilds. Uh, and they were behind the Schiff uh, bankers and the Morgan bankers. And the Rockefeller bankers kind of came on board just to make money. But it was really a, a, uh, a Jewish banking movement that created the Federal Reserve and freed up the money that would support Britain and France in the war effort. So however it worked out and whatever the players were, by 1917, they were ready for the Balfour Declaration, which was a project of the... Uh, a British Roundtable under Milner, who were staunch Zionists and allies of the Rothschilds. So however it happened, uh, it was uh, uh, tapping into the power of the United States to eventually create Israel. I, I don't have any doubt about that. Okay. Well, Peter, Peter Myers, um, in his book, sees the Roundtable as substantially different from the Rothschilds and the, and the Jewish uh, bankers side of things, he yeah. sees the Jewish bankers and the Rothschilds as being very much the product of, of the uh, Illuminati of Adam Weishaupt that you mentioned earlier uh, and of the sort of uh, globalist and what would become the Trotskyite wing of Marxism. And so the, that, that uh, Jewish bankers then would be sort of radicals or as uh, E. Michael Jones would say, you know, they had the Jewish revolutionary spirit in them. Right. Whereas the yeah. Roundtable, according to Myers, is much more sort of culturally conservative, a bunch of Anglophiles who want to impose British and uh, Anglo domination on the world. And we're not particularly pro-Jewish and certainly not sort of left wing, you know, destroy the family, destroy the nation, build one world, uh, all that sort of Illuminati stuff. So he, he sees a big difference there. And he thinks that the roundtable just eventually got taken over by the Rothschilds. It sort of was, you know, subject to a well, hostile takeover. There's, there, I don't agree entirely with that. Uh, when, when Cecil Rhodes uh, left his will, and, and, of course, Rhodes was the impetus for the roundtable. Miller was his main disciple. Uh, he left his money uh, to Nathaniel Rothschild. 
And so the two were, you know, joined at the hip. Uh, from you, the you, you wouldn't beginning. think a Rothschild would, would need people to be leaving them money. <laughs> well, as a custodian, you know, as, right, as the right. trustee, as, as it were. So, so uh, yeah, it went in different directions, like the Rhodes Scholarships and all that. But here's something that I just learned recently, and I didn't, didn't really understand this. Uh, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution was financed by, by the Jews, uh, particularly by uh, Schiff from New York, from Kuhn Loeb and company. No, right. he yeah, that seems one. to be one of those conspiracy theories that's pretty well documented. Oh, yeah, that's just very well known. And they admit it. I mean, they don't they don't hide it. Uh, but the people who actually went to Russia uh, to uh, work on preparing the ground for the revolution there before Lenin and Trotsky appeared on the scene, they were sent by uh, Milner from the round table. Uh, I just read this one account of what was going on in Petersburg at the time. Uh, and it said there were so many Englishmen running around Petersburg fomenting uh, the worker strikes and all that stuff that it was obvious that it was a joint venture between the Jewish bankers and the, and the British uh, foreign office. So there you go. Do, do you think the British, persuasive. do you think the British empire and its struggle to remain number one in the world against the rising industrial power of Germany and the rising power of Russia, which would be even bigger if it fully industrialized yeah. would be the motivation for the British to be uh, running around uh, undermining the viability of these countries like Russia and Germany. Yeah, like that Washington that was part of it. But the, yeah, that was part of it. But the thing is, it merged. And if you look today, uh, uh, the empire, and of course now it's the Anglo-American empire or the American Anglo empire or the American Anglo-Zionist empire, however you want to call it, they succeeded in putting Europe in, a, uh, in its place. And they run Europe today. Uh, if you look at Germany, of course, Germany is in collapse because they've lost their sovereignty to this empire. But the one that's always resisted has been Russia. And they thought they had Russia uh, because Stalin was their man. Uh, and of course, that's a whole other area. Uh, Stalin was their man? Well, he became after Lenin. Uh, I mean, Lenin was the agent who, who created the revolution based on the Jewish money and the English support. But Stalin took over as kind of the, the new czar. But he also harbored the revolutionary impulse that uh, uh, created Israel, for example. Israel was created by Stalin, by the Jews of Russia carrying the weapons from Czechoslovakia. But he ended up regretting uh, it, didn't he? And, and then they ended up killing him. As well, I that may it. be. Yeah, that may be. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, and, and now the, the the final contingent of the Jews pretty much left Russia after 1991. And uh, Scott Ritter says that's why Israel has become so savage and vicious. It's because of all the ones who left after the collapse of the Soviet Union to go to Israel. They're, they're, they're the Russian Jews that are... That are the reactionary fanatics that want to kill everybody. But in, in any case, all of these different impulses kind of merge together. And so that's why I think it is accurate to speak today of the Anglo-American Zionist empire 
And that's the empire that is now veering toward collapse. Just and like how long Reed said it would. Right. So how's it going to collapse? Will it die to death with a thousand cuts or will there be some, you know, sort of overwhelming, you know, event that quickly brings it down? Don't know. We don't know. Uh, you know, there's the Samson option. Some people say, well, at some point, Israel is just going to start throwing nukes at everybody. Or the neocons are going to get the United States to start throwing nukes at everybody. Uh through, for example, attacking Iran. Uh, that's supposed to be a neocon project, and it may be a, a manifestation of the Samson option. Uh, we don't know that. We hope not. But uh, that's certainly one of the possibilities. Yeah, that that would be kind of surprising to me in that the plan to attack Iran has been on the drawing boards and supported by a certain neocon element, certainly by Netanyahu, for 20 years now. And they did these war games back in the early 2000s and found that the U.S. loses in a war with Iran. And Iran's position has gotten relatively stronger and the U.S.'s position has gotten relatively weaker ever since. And today, with the magic of 9-11 having fully worn off, the American people being sick of these forever wars and not buying in really to the propaganda against Iran in any major way, it's it's kind of hard to imagine how they could get away with a war on Iran now that they obviously couldn't get away with back when they were in a much stronger relative position. Yeah, I hope you're right. Uh, you know, it would be interesting to be a fly on a wall of a meeting uh, with uh, uh, John Bolton, uh, Lindsey Graham and Victoria Newland. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That would right. be quite an experience. But uh, no, you're right. And and uh, one of my contacts in, in, in the Middle East, uh, uh, somebody I've mentioned in my articles uh, in Lebanon, he's quite convinced there will not be a major war, uh, that all the U.S. is doing now is bluffing. They know they've lost. They know they can't prevail. And that Iran is fully posed with uh, with uh, China and Russia at their back to stand up to the United States. And if they want to pull the plug on the world economy, they're quite willing and able to do that. But the idea, the hope is that they won't and uh, that the Western uh, power will just kind of uh, uh, peter away uh, as the dollar declines. And that eventually the United States will realize, hey, we're a country, but we're not the ruler of the world. And things will gradually assume their proper place. And I think that's kind of what Putin was saying uh, last night, was that uh, uh, things are changing, things are moving in a direction, and it's going to be inevitable that we reach the multipolar world. And we just hope that we'll be able to do this uh, in a peaceable way. And I think that's kind of what Trump is saying. And that's kind of why the neocons hate Trump so much. Uh, because he, he's talking about pulling out of NATO. They pull out of NATO, Europe is gone. Europe becomes independent. Uh, so there's all that going on as well. So, I, you know, I certainly hope you're right. Yeah, well, I guess I do too. And probably it will yeah. work out that way. Yeah, yeah, it's it. You know, there is this 
change in relative power going on related to the fall of the U.S. proportion of global GDP and the rise of the proportion controlled by these independent powers uh, led by yeah. China, Russia, Iran, and so on. And so ultimately, that does have to have political consequences. At some point, the U.S. won't be able to afford all those military bases and we'll have to become a normal country. The sooner, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Well, hey, thank you, Richard Cook. It's always great talking with you. Uh, thank you, Kevin. recent article was, was great, and, and so is your book, Our Country, Then and Now. We'll be back in the second hour with Rafik, or Robert Sean Lewis, to discuss his new novel, Hatan the Revolutionary. 